Uh, open up to Exodus chapter 19 this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through, through 25. Follow along then as we, as we read the word of God. Now on the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out uh, of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain of God. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall speak to and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called to the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered uh, together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud and the people uh, that the people may hear when I speak with you and they may believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. You shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care, uh, nor uh, take care not to go up into the onto the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. Uh, but shall be stoned or shot, uh, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain of God and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, they were there were thunder and lightnings thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast that all the people of the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and took their and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the, the and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Let and let the priests Uh, And let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people 
uh, cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourselves warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. For the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through uh, to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us from this passage, that we would hear your word and that we would draw comfort and strength uh, from it, that we would have a picture here of of your majesty, of your uh, power and might, and that we would uh, delight in you in in all of these things. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Uh, Did you ever have one of those uh, exams, maybe in high school or college, uh, and and you failed it and you remember the exam and you remember the question on the exam that you got wrong uh, because you should have known it. And now you don't remember anything else about that exam, but you remember that one question that you uh, it sticks out in your head. You almost remember it better because you didn't get it in the exam. I have one of those experiences in my life. You may not have ever had that, but but that happened to me. I was in seminary and I was in an apologetics class, which apologetics is how to defend the faith, how to talk about it, uh, how to answer certain questions about it. And and the professor said to us things that were going to be on the exam. And he said there's going to be a, a question to have memorized a, a statement from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I thought, okay, that's fine. What are the odds of that question being on the test? Because this is an apologetics. You know, he's running through the things. Yeah, we went over this in class. Make sure you know it. Uh, the statement is this. It's Westminster Confession of Faith 7-1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which has been which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Guess which question was on the exam? He had a question and it was simply, tell me what Westminster Confession 7-1 says. Uh, I wasn't Presbyterian. I'm not Presbyterian. I appreciate uh, their confession of faith. But I kind of felt like, well, why do I need to know this? Well, I should have known because it's on the exam. But I say that to say I, I may not have this memorized, but I'll tell you what, this statement has stuck with me ever since then. Uh, whenever I think about how God relates to the world, when you think about how he comes down, uh, I, I, my mind goes through some of the language of this statement. And the idea here in the statement, and it summarizes scripture, so I'm not commending it because of, of it, I'm commending it because it summarizes scripture. God is so big, God is so great and so infinite and, and we are just these creatures that there is, even though we should obey him and we should know who he is, there is no way for us to comprehend and understand him unless God comes down to us. And, and this is what it means when it says, unless by some voluntary condescension. Now, we, we don't talk that way. 
you need to condescend yourself to people. Uh, no, we might use condescending, meaning you're talking down to them. But, but condescension, it, it doesn't have a negative connotation. It has a good connotation. God comes down. You know how when your child is little and, and you need to communicate something and they don't understand adult language and, and you get down on your knee and you, and you look them in your eye, their eye and you speak on a level that they can understand so that your instruction is clear? This is what God does. John Calvin has a phrase, and, and he doesn't mean it literally, but he, he has this phrase where he says, God lisps and speaks baby talk to us. That he comes down and speaks in language that we can grasp. God is so infinite. We can't know God as he knows himself. How can me, being finite, understand the, the magnificence of an infinite God? God has to come down. God has to show himself. He has to bring himself to our level. And so we have on Mount Sinai, God doing this. And the way he does this throughout scripture is he does it through covenants. Now, covenants are when God comes and he makes promises. Sometimes he gives conditions, but most of the covenants are, are unconditional promises where God unites himself to his people and his people unite themselves or now are united to God. So he steps down to have a relationship with us because we can never step up and have a relationship with him in his infinite majesty and glory. So much of today's spirituality is this idea that we can get to God. That if we just meditate more, if we just think about God more, we can transcend who we are and move up and commune with whatever the version of the divine is that it holds to. We've lost this sense of wonder in God, this sense of his holiness, this sense of his majesty, that the only way that I can know God and have any connection with him is that he comes down to us. And so you say to yourself, well, what does Mount Sinai, what does this Exodus story have to do with me today? I can know God because God has come to me. God comes to his people. God doesn't leave us wandering around and trying to find him and grasp him because we would never succeed. But there is this goodness in God where he voluntarily gets down on one knee, as it was, and comes to his people. And that is the message of the word of God. That's what we see at Sinai. That is most of all what we see in the incarnation and the cross. We'll get there. But let's look first at Mount Sinai. God comes to his people. God comes to us to redeem us. So that we might be a treasured possession among all the peoples. So in part, God is coming down, not just so that we can know him, but so that we can become special to him. God comes down to us so that he can lift us up, as it were. And so you'll notice here the people of God, they they come out of the wilderness and they come to the wilderness now of Mount Sinai. Verse one, verse two, they've come from Rephidim. They came to the wilderness. They encamped in the wilderness and Israel encamped before the mountain. This is the fulfillment of 
of the promise given to Moses. Remember when Moses saw God in the burning bush? God said to Moses, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve serve God on this mountain. And now Moses is back on this mountain and the people of God are with them. God has kept his word. He has shown his mighty hand of redemption. And now he's going to show how precious his people are by announcing who he is and coming into this covenant relationship with him. Uh, If we can put it this way, God is going to marry his people. He has saved them and brought them out. And Mount Sinai is going to be, in a sense, their wedding day. So look at verse four. God has borne up his people, bore his people on eagles wings. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you, excuse me, and brought you uh, to myself. You think of how. Uh, the majestic eagle soars. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever seen a bald eagle, but but it is amazing. There was one in a nest not too far from here. You could see we were one time uh, river uh, rafting. It wasn't even rafting. It was like uh, inner tubing on a small creek uh, called the Swatera Creek up in Lebanon. And we were coming along and there's this bald eagle perched right over the river. And, and when it flew away, it was just beautiful. I was hoping it would let us get under it. But but once we sort of got close, it just these things have massive wings uh, and, and they just spread them out. I saw a picture the other day uh, on Facebook of some kind of eagle or, or some kind of hunter bird like this, where it had it had it was still facing straight forward. Its head was still facing normal. But it had twisted its body so its wings were all vertical. I don't know if it was about ready to fly through something narrow, but it was it was majestic. And here is this picture of this majestic God with these these giant wings that he has he has spread out and just how the eagle's wings lift up the eagle. God has has lifted up his wings and, and he doesn't have literal wings. Right. This is a figure of speech, but he bore out his children. There was strength there. There was beauty. There was majesty. And it, and it says, he brought you, he says, I brought you to myself. God describes himself as in other places like a, a mother hen who, who nestles in her chicks and gets them under her wings and, and shields them and, and brings them to them herself. God brings out his children out of Egypt. He calls them his firstborn son. And and this is the Exodus. And and part of what is going on here, it's it's kind of standard formula for how they made covenants in the ancient world. And one of the first things you did when you made a covenant, you would say, who is making the covenant and why is he making it? God is making the covenant. and, And why is he making it? He's saying, I'm making it because I've redeemed you. I have saved you. This is my identity and this is my character. What have I done that you should come into covenant uh, with me? Deuteronomy 32 says similarly, he found him, the nation, in a desert land, in a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and he cared for him and he kept him, the nation of Israel, as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, 
uh, spreading out his wings, catching them, bearing them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. None of the idols in Egypt could do this. And God has been saying, you will see my glory. You will see my glory. You will see my magnificence. I am the only God. And he did these things. You want to know who's speaking at Mount Sinai, Israel? It's the God who just redeemed you. Brothers and sisters, you want to know who speaks to us in the word of God? It is the God who has saved you in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and cared for you and sent his son to die for you. He has given you his word. And we honor his word because we understand who it is that is speaking to us. We're probably most familiar with the language of eagles from Isaiah 40, 30 and 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up like uh, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now here the imagery is, is when we have strength from the Lord, we are like ones who mount up on, on wings of eagles. But I'm, I'm fairly sure that Isaiah has in mind this imagery of God who delivers his people, who strengthens his people, who is like an eagle who launches them out. It's a picture of redemption. And it's what God did for them at the Red Sea. And God's people are now going to be his possession. They're going to be a a kingdom of priests. They were special to the Lord. And they are special to the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ has sent his son down to earth. He has condescended in the incarnation. He has died on the cross. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are precious to him. Some of the same themes that we see in Exodus and at Mount Sinai are the themes that come to fulfillment. They come to a climax. They come to a completion in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a treasured possession who Jesus Christ shed his blood for. You are his child if you have believed on his name. You have been adopted into his family. So notice Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, And for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And there and there are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God is making a covenant. And when they made covenants in the ancient world, the the covenant maker would announce who he is. And oftentimes it was the head king. And God is saying, I am the king. I am the the only God. He is saying that I am the one who has authority. All the earth is mine. This is standard covenant formula in covenants in the ancient world. They would lay out the stipulations. You know, if you're going to be in covenant with me, if you're going to be, say, my subject, if it was a king making uh, a covenant with people, he would he would say, this is what you have to do. 
This is the response. And the response here from the people of God is to be obey my voice. Keep my commandments. Follow the covenant. I have saved you. I have redeemed you. I have carried you out. I am I am uniting myself in like a marriage to you. And, and all he's saying basically is what you would say in any marriage. Now, be faithful to me. Take up your part of the vow, if you will. Of course, we'll see later on in Exodus. They don't do that. But notice it's the response to redemption. The response to God's grace is to live in faithfulness to God. God has called out Israel and he has set them apart. So God is not saying if you earn something with me, then I will love you. Then you will be my possession. God is saying, I've redeemed you. He's already called them his firstborn son. Now he says, I'm making a covenant with you. Live as part of this covenant with me. And you are a treasured possession. And this is how a a treasured possession lives and acts. This is how a, a child of God responds to the goodness and the graciousness of God. Jeremiah 2, 3, the beginning of it says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. The plan and purpose of God is to bring Israel out so that she might be a light to the nations. So God is going to reveal himself to Israel. But the purpose is so that Israel will tell other people about God. Does that sound familiar at all? Like, why does God save you? Well, one, it's so you can go to heaven. Two, more importantly, it's for his own glory. It magnifies his own character. But three, he also redeems us and leaves us here on earth as strangers and exiles so we might tell other people, so that we might be salt of the earth, so that we might be a light to the nations and other people, so that we might follow the Great Commission. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and then later in chapter 9 says that Israel is not supposed to think they were special because they were better than everybody else, that they were more righteous. But God, in his calling them, has made them holy. See, it's not that they were holy and then God says, wow, I like this holiness that you're doing. Okay, I'll bring you out. It's that they weren't holy and God, in his bringing them out, has has washed them by taking them through the Red Sea. He has redeemed them. Deuteronomy 7, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of from the hand of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. Um, Deuteronomy 26:18. the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession. And as he promised you and as you are to keep all his commandments, that he will set you in praise and in fame and in high honor above all the nations that he has made. And you shall be a people holy to your God, uh, the Lord, your God, as he 
promise. So God is saying here, too, in verse six, that he makes them a a kingdom of priests, a a nation that has a a priestly function, a a holy nation. Uh, One commentator even said they they are like a body of priests ruling as kings. They they are kingly in 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 the way that they represent God and the character they have. And they're going to rule the promised land, but they're they're priestly. In the sense that they are to bring the knowledge of God to the world. What do priests do? Priests in the ancient world are mediators between God and man. And so you'll often have the priests. They go into the tabernacle once a year. They go into the Holy of Holies. They they take part in the sacrifices. But more than that, they come back out. And, and, And many of the priests, their simple job was to lead in worship to teach the word of God, the Levites, to pass it on to the next generation, to be, if you will, mediators. God's plan for Israel was not just about Israel, but it was about making his name known to the ends of the earth. What did God say uh, to Abraham? The, The promise was that I will make your name great. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Micah 4.2. Come. This is, he says, and the nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God makes this covenant with Israel so that he can eventually spread his name into the nations so that they can be a blessing to others, so that they can be priestly in the sense of taking out the message of God, that they would live and show the world what does it mean to be set apart? What does it mean to be holy, to be washed and cleansed, to be sanctified? Brothers and sisters, this is who Jesus has made us to be. First, Peter says this. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, we're not priests in the sense that we don't we don't come here and I didn't ask you to bring your your rams and your goats for Fellowship Sunday, and we're going to go downstairs and have a blood sacrifice because we're, we're priests, guys, and this is what we have to do. We're priests in the sense that we take the message of the Word of God, that we shine the light of who God is to other people. He says we're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So our worship, our serving others, our spiritual sacrifices. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you, he's speaking to the church and he uses this language from Exodus. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That's the same idea of Exodus 19, 4. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the church. We don't have a a physical government. We don't have a physical territory that we rule over, but we are a people of God. We we are a nation made up of people from every tongue, tribe and earthly nation. 
And guess what? As a nation, Jesus is our King. And and the the ministry of the Word of God is our our legislative branch. If we can, maybe that's a bad analogy. But the ministry of the Word of God is a a functioning of the kingdom. We are a nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness. Into his marvelous light. You are a treasured possession if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he has taken you. And he has washed you. He has taken that lump of coal and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has turned you into a shining diamond. And now he's not done with you yet. And you still have areas that you need to grow. And you're still being polished, if you will. But you are to reflect the glory of God, to bear his image. Why is it so important that in the church we get along? Because we're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. Why is it so important that we confess that with with genuine believers around the world, that they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their socioeconomic status, that we are equal in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we are treasured possessions, all of us. We have been bought with a price. And, and Peter says that God has taken people who were not his people and made them his people, meaning most of us were not Israelites by heritage. But we have been grafted into the promises of God. We have become not by by blood and genetics, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have become recipients of grace and mercy. We are blessed with salvation so that we might be a blessing to others. We are a treasured possession Not so that we can walk around and think of how much better we are than everybody else. But so that we can live as an example and share the marvelous excellencies of the glory of God. Second, God comes down to speak so that he or God comes down so he might speak and be believed. And and this is actually going to have a function here in in validating the ministry of Moses as he's giving you the law. Listen to him. Why? Because God spoke to Moses on the mountain. So the people then they'll affirm their covenant oath. All the people say in verse eight, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, which just a few chapters later than they're not doing. And we'll see that as we get into it. But for now, their their heart's in the right place. They want to follow the Lord. Then verse 9, God is going to bring his word. He says, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that people may hear when I speak with you and as also may believe you forever when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So so how are we supposed to know that God's hand was in Moses? Who else did God speak to on the mountain? It's interesting that Jesus takes three disciples and goes back up to the mountain 
And we have the Mount of Transfiguration. And he shows a bit of his glory on that mountain. And after his resurrection, he ascends into heaven to show his glory so that we might know. And we see it in his earthly life. We see it in his character. We see it in his miracles that he does on earth so that we might know that Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. Hebrews chapter 3 says this. And he's saying this to us as believers. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you have heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? They heard the trumpet. They heard the thunder on the mountain. And and how did they respond? They're going to rebel. The warning is for us in the gospel. Do you hear the word of God? And if you do, stand fast to the word of God. Stand fast because Jesus has spoken in his coming down. He has revealed himself. We cannot get up to God, but God in the son has come down to us. And it is an even greater coming than it was at Mount Sinai when God came down. At Mount Sinai, the people had to prepare themselves before the Lord. They had to spend two days consecrating themselves, washing their clothes, being ceremonially pure. They had to be like priests and priests had rules of ceremony before they could go into the presence of God. But the ceremonies were not about the ceremonies. Don't want to be too crude about it, but God really doesn't care if you take a bath or not. Everybody else cares if you take a bath before you come to church on Sunday. But God doesn't think any less of you if you didn't get a shower before you came to church this morning. In the ancient Israelite Old Testament, the bathing was ceremonial of needing to be washed needing to be cleansed, needing the heart to be cleansed. It's also a reminder here that without holiness, no one can see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord Uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false And only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life to see the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. We sing that hymn. Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood, in the precious blood of the Lamb? And so they're preparing themselves here as a reminder to us to say, without holiness, I can't see God. And. God will say to Moses later on, no one can see my face and live. That it is a fearful thing to enter into the presence of God. That his majesty and his glory is so far above us that if I just go into the presence of God as I am, 
I will be wiped from existence. I will be judged because of my sin. But God makes a way by coming down. You see it symbolized in the tabernacle. And we'll talk about that later as we get into Exodus. That God lets his presence come among his people. But most of all, in the Son, the presence of God comes. God comes down in a manifestation of his majesty and his glory. You see this going on. You'll see the cloud comes down, verse 16 and 17. There is a trumpet blast. Verse 18, the smoke is is wrapping around the mountain. And, and the smoke even veils the glory of God so that the people aren't eradicated because they can't see him through the thick smoke. And so even in the tabernacle, the priests would burn the incense and, and have the smoke in the, in the center in the Holy of Holies so that they wouldn't be overwhelmed in the presence of the glory of God. There's this loud trumpet growing louder and louder. And, and we're even, I think, reminded what happens on the day of the Lord's return. The last trumpet. The trumpet of God coming will blast forth. And so the people are reminded they can't come up to Mount Sinai. But God comes to them and uses Moses as a mediator to bring the law. What do we say to this? Remember that God comes to dwell with us. That God's ultimate purpose in redeeming us is to make us his children fashion us and shape us to be his treasured possession. You have value because of what God has done for you in redeeming you. You are special. One, because you're made in the image of God. But two, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are precious to God. We need to remind ourselves that sometimes. Certainly we have sin that we need to take seriously and we need to repent of it and we need to come before God through the cross to be forgiven. But remember that when Christ, when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Christ covering you and the work that He has done for you and in you. And you are precious to Him. Even as a Christian, We don't see the glory of God in the sense of the cloud coming down or hearing the trumpet. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I think in today's society, we've lost that sense of the wonder and the majesty of God. What it means to know Jesus. You have seen the glory of God. Maybe not physically, maybe not literally, But in hearing his word, in coming to the cross, in believing in his death and resurrection, God has given you spiritual eyes to see the magnificence of what he's done. And we should be crying out and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we should be saying, isn't God wonderful? Like, I can't go to God. I can't just come up and waltz into his presence. God had to come down and have his son die for me so that I could be cleansed by his blood and then go into his presence. 
And this is why when Jesus goes into heaven or when Jesus dies on the cross, the veil in the tabernacle is torn away and he goes back into heaven on our behalf as a mediator. That when I pray to God the Father, Jesus takes my prayers into the very presence of the throne room of God. And so we kind of return to where we started this sermon. That God is precious and he's saved us and redeemed us. But, but what is truly beautiful about God is that we should meditate on his, his majesty and his magnificence. How much bigger and I don't mean that God has literal physical size, but how much bigger is God than me? Like I'm finite. I am, I am this speck of dust on this tiny little rock that orbits this tiny little star. And the universe is expansive. And yet God is more infinite than the universe. And he comes down to this tiny little planet in the middle of nowhere in his creation. And he dies for a people who are nobodies, but had been made in his image. His glory is magnificent and pales in comparison to my weakness. His perfection and his holiness is wondrous in contrast to the depths of my sin. And yet he would wash those sins away so that I can go and fellowship with him and come into his presence. I want to end reading Hebrews. Hebrews says this in chapter 12. And he's contrasting Mount Sinai with where we are as believers. He says, for we have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest, tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. He's saying, we haven't come to this Mount Sinai where, where people were scared and trembled, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable angels in festal gathering and the assembly of the firstborn. You are in Jesus's kingdom now. You go to Jesus's mountain now. And Jesus has made himself one of us, a human being, so that we could come in fellowship with God. God comes down so we can know him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father. Oh, Lord, we so often take you for granted. We are so often casual about your character. We often treat you like some sort of therapist who's there only to do what we want. But you have shown your glory. You have made your magnificence known that we might behold it and most of all behold it and see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that, Lord, on the one hand, we should tremble at your glory and majesty. And yet, on the other hand, you have made peace with us through the cross so we can rejoice and come into your presence, not because it is some sort of right inherent to us, but because it is a privilege that you have given us in making us sons and daughters of God, of making us holy and cleansing us. Oh, God, we praise you for this. Oh, God, we ask that we might have this picture in our day of your magnificence, of your glory, of your infinite character and wonder. May we never stop marveling at how marvelous you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.